What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And this is Ada Shen. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. The hot phrase this week across all Chinese media is Belt and Road. The summit on President Xi Jinping's signature initiative will take place over the weekend, with representatives from more than 130 countries gathering in Beijing. Expect to see some lavish ceremonies and large investment deals announced. Some numbers are already out. China's National Bureau of Statistics said that Chinese companies have invested over 60 billion U.S. dollars in Belt and Road countries between 2013 and 2016. But the most promising and most concrete building blocks of this initiative are projects along these routes. Taishin has an article this week detailing private Chinese investments in Cambodia, especially the special zone in the area around Sihanoukville. These special economic zones that China built in other countries have assumed real significance. There are already 77 such zones in 36 countries, from Pakistan to Thailand. Chinese officials call these the shining pearls of the Belt and Road Initiative, and they hope to replicate the Shenzhen model as a testing ground for economic reform and supportive government policies. The biggest U.S.-China news this week is a 10-point agreement increasing access in China for U.S. beef and financial services. Beginning June 16th, U.S. beef will be sold in China, and U.S.-owned card payment services like Visa and MasterCard will soon be allowed to begin the licensing process in a sector that has been dominated by China union pay. Foreign-owned firms in China will also be able to provide credit rating services. The agreement marks the initial stage of a 100-day action plan that Xi Jinping proposed during his meeting with Trump at Mar-a-Lago in early April. Obviously satisfied, the U.S. has upgraded its delegation to participate in the Belt and Road Summit. Meanwhile, Alibaba is making inroads to the U.S. payment market by a new deal. First Data will put Alipay in the same league as Apple Pay and let Alipay's users shop at 4 million U.S. merchants served by its payment processor. This deal will primarily target Chinese tourists, since the U.S. payment market is much less reliant on mobile transaction than it is in China. And in other fintech news, China is preparing to impose regulatory oversight on trading of Bitcoin next month to fight use of the electronic currency for money laundering. That's bad news for Bitcoin speculators, many of whom are actually Chinese. 
The tiny nation of Djibouti on the Horn of Africa has been the recipient of huge amounts of investment from China as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So let's talk to Caixin editor Doug Young about a piece this week by reporter Yang Ge talking about this investment. Doug, this piece says that Djibouti is feasting on China's Belt and Road largesse. What's on the menu for this feast? Well, we're coming up on this big Belt and Road Summit, which is a big cause for China these days. And Djibouti fits very nicely into that story, even though I think there's other issues involved here than Belt and Road. Just to recap quickly, Belt and Road is all about bringing other countries into China's desire to export its expertise in developing infrastructure. China spent zillions and zillions of dollars building up its own railroad, road networks, electricity infrastructure, all these different things. And now it has all this expertise that it wants to export. And specifically, they've homed in on countries on the old Silk Road that goes through Central Asia and also the Maritime Silk Road that goes over sea around the Horn of Africa and down back through Europe. So this country called Djibouti is actually becoming the recipient of this kind of big export of infrastructure technology that China wants to do. And basically what's happened is this is a tiny little country. It's smaller than Holland, about two-thirds the size of Holland. And it's located right at the mouth of the Red Sea, which is on a major shipping lane that goes through the Suez Canal and, and into the Mediterranean Sea. So it's a very strategically located country. And China, just in the last couple of years, has dumped more than $10 billion worth of infrastructure investment into this tiny little country. It includes everything from power plants to construction of a major new port, building of two airports, and also a railroad connecting Djibouti to uh, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. If you look at the bigger picture, it's pretty much all about energy. Addis Ababa and Ethiopia have these huge natural gas fields that China wants to try to exploit. Part of this big package is they're building a major gas pipeline from these gas fields to Djibouti because that's on the sea, which is sort of important if you want to get this gas outside the country. Ethiopia is landlocked. The other big picture is that Djibouti is also strategically located in terms of the shipping lanes. So China's actually set up a military base, which is its first ever military base outside the country. And it's investing a ton of money here. So they want to be able to protect that investment. But also there have been issues in terms of piracy along the Somalia coast. And there have also been a couple of incidents where Chinese have had to be evacuated. One occurred in Yemen a, a year or two ago, and then a few years before that in Libya big local uprisings and instability and, and Chinese workers needed to be evacuated. And China didn't really have a naval base to you know operate from. So this would be a key base in a part of the world that is a bit known for instability. And is this good all around for Djibouti? One of the points I touch on in the story, and, and this is something that people don't really see, is that China is pumping just tons of money. You don't pump $10 billion dollars. This is a country you're talking about with an annual GDP of $1.7 billion. So they're pumping quite a, a lot of money into this. And it's not a gift. You know, it's a, most of it's going as loans that need to be repaid. 
So one interesting secondary point is that the IMF earlier this year put out a note saying that Djibouti's debt to GDP ratio is really rising in the last two years. It's up to about 85% of GDP, and just two years ago it was 50%. Of course, this isn't a huge GDP to start with. But the bottom line is that this is a country that maybe can't afford that much debt, but China is so eager to give them money and do this infrastructure that they're saying, hey, if you want to give us money, we'll take it. But at the same time, they're taking on huge amounts of debt that if these projects don't work out the way they were hoping or things don't develop quite the way they thought, you know, this is a country that could, you know, potentially go bankrupt or default on the debt, and that would be huge losses for China as well. Thanks, Doug. Caixin Global reporters Wang Jing and Li Rongde have a piece out this week about the bust of a big hacking ring targeting hospitals in Guangzhou. General news reporter Li Rongde joins us here for a brief discussion of the piece. Rongde, what's going on here? So hackers are stealing data on drug sales from doctors and are selling that data to pharmaceutical reps? Is that is that correct? It is nothing new for salespersons from the pharmaceutical company to pay doctors' kickbacks to help promote their products. But what is shocking in this story, they're now trying to reach out to hackers to break into the computer system to steal the sales figures. They can better target which doctors prescribe what kind of drugs, the the amount, so they can maximize their revenues. I think that is a, a shocking part of this story. So are the drug reps actually hiring the hackers or are the hackers grabbing this data on their own and then finding buyers? As the investigation is still ongoing, we don't know how these people you know, hook up with each other. So give us a little background here. Why is this happening? Public hospital in China has a also run a pharmacy, which means they also make some revenue from prescription drugs. From 2006, the hospitals are allowed to impose a markup on prescription drugs up to 15% as part of their revenue. Also, the public hospital receive very little funding from the government, which means they have to come up with most of the expenditures. So a doctor think their pay is lousy, so that's developing this kind of problem, you know, kickback. You know, basically, the demanding kickback from the pharmaceutical companies, and uh, in return, they help promote their drugs. So, is is there a solution here? What what are authorities apt to actually do about this? Because these, uh, you know, the scandals in the past and the public uproar, the government is trying to fix the problem. The first thing they're trying to do, they are moving to scrap the markups the hospital are allowed to impose on prescription drugs, the 15% the drug that we've been talking about. The second thing they promise to give the public hospitals more funding, which means they don't have to rely on these illicit means. The third thing they're trying to do is relax the price control of the services, uh, like operations, services uh, for inpatients, which means they can charge more on certain primary services to offset a potential shortfall as a result of the scratching of the markups. Well, thanks very much, Rongde. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. 
we'll look at a long-running dispute between a small grain storage company in Hunan and a huge state-run giant, and how it resulted in the tragic loss of 160,000 tons of wheat. We'll hear about China's mega-payment platform Alipay and its push into the U.S. market. We'll remember Chinese diplomat Chen Chichun, who normalized relations with Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union and played an important role in the return to China of Hong Kong and Macau. And finally, we'll look into what may be causing the bad delays at the port of Shanghai. From Business and Tech, May 10th, 2017. Spat over bill leaves 160,000 tons of wheat to rot. By April Ma. Beijing. More than 160,000 tons of wheat were left to rot in a warehouse in China for over seven years due to a dispute over the bill, a SPAT-1 expert says underscores the need for reform in the heavily state-steered grain sector. State-owned China Grain Reserves Corporation, Sinograin, is the country's largest buyer of grain, often at prices far above the international market to boost Chinese farmers' livelihoods. It leased storage space from Jinshuo Grain and Oil Company, located in Henan, which is one of the largest grain-yielding provinces in China. Jinshuo Grain said Sinograin wouldn't pay its bill, so the small company stopped the upkeep of the grain storage, ending ventilation and pest control measures, the China News Service reported. But Sinograin said in a statement Monday that the grain company refused to give the grain back even after a buyer was found in 2014 because its financial demands were not met. As a result of the tug-of-war, enough wheat for 45 million standard-sized boxes of cereal went to waste. The costs for keeping the grain in condition mounted to over 1 million yuan, $144,000, according to the China News Service. I can't believe that such a large state-funded body would fail to pay their rent, Jinshuo owner Zhang Qingwei told Caixin in a phone interview. He also disagreed with Sinograin, saying the wheat was not sold until March 2015, not 2014. The moldy grain is now finally in the process of being removed from the storage space. The waste hit a nerve among many citizens in the country that in the last century suffered a massive famine. Heaven forbid, it's only been a few decades since we've been living on a full stomach. What a terrible waste. Feed it to the authorities responsible, wrote Yishan Yishao, one angry user on Weibo, China's version of Twitter. As the state's grain reserve monopoly, Sinograin squirrels away its heavily subsidized grain to fend off the threat of food shortages after decades of low grain reserves. Normally, a grain reserve network consisting of farmers, food processing companies, and local governments would help smooth out volatile prices, said Zheng Fengtian, an agricultural economics professor at the People's University of China. But when everything is taken care of by a state monopoly, that breeds corruption and inefficiency. Food security is deemed a national security issue, and there is little disclosure or transparency surrounding China's grain reserves. The excessively high amount of reserves, well over an average 15% of the annual production rate adopted by most other countries, according to Zheng, coupled with mismanagement and a lack of supervision, lead to problems like the wasted grain in Henan, he said. An investigation in 2013 into the grain sector by China's Central Disciplinary Committee found a, quote, severe lack of internal supervision that has led to frequent low-level corruption cases, exaggerated figures to cheat subsidies, and even the practice of mixing sand with grain. Meanwhile, state broadcaster CCTV last year reported that Sinograin and some granaries passed off stale grain as fresh harvests to garner higher prices. 
The visible hand is sending out misleading market information to farmers at the cost of taxpayers, and the only ones benefiting are the people up and down the ladder at Sinograin, Jung said. Business and Tech, May 9, 2017. Alipay to debut in U.S., hot on the heels of WeChat, by Coco Fung. Chinese online payment service Alipay, controlled by Alibaba's Jack Ma, will soon be available in the United States. The news comes a week after major domestic rival WeChat announced its entry into the market. Ant Financial Services Group, which operates Alipay, is partnering with American payment solutions firm First Data Corp to offer the Chinese platform access to its 4 million clients in the U.S., the American company said Monday. The U.S.-wide launch of Alipay, China's largest online payment provider with around 450 million active users, comes after a pilot rollout in November at certain retail locations in California and New York State. Our goal is to extend reliable payment services to the over 4 million Chinese consumers that visit North America every year, said Sohail Badran, president of Alipay North America. As in China, the transactions will be enabled by scanning a QR code on shoppers' phones. The move comes just a week after Alipay's major rival, WeChat Payment, owned by internet firm Tencent Holdings Limited and embedded in the popular messaging app WeChat, announced its entry to the U.S. via a tie-up with the Silicon Valley-based payment startup Sitcon. Mobile payment in China dwarfs that of much of the rest of the world, where even roadside food stalls accept Alipay and WeChat. In 2016, mobile payment transactions rose 45% to 158 trillion yuan. That's 23 trillion U.S. dollars, according to China's central bank, while the figure in the U.S. was only 112 billion, up 39%, according to Forrester Research. In China, Alipay and WeChat accounted for around 90% of that share, according to consultancy analysis. In their home country, both platforms have rolled out similar strategies to win users, including eliminating service charges for money transfers and giving out money during Lunar New Year. Alipay was an early entrant into the market in 2004 and maintains a larger market share in China at 50% to WeChat's sub-40%. But WeChat is catching up and has an advantage in that since its launch in 2013, WeChat payments are a sub-function of the WeChat Messenger app, positioning it strongly within the social networking app, as users can pass digital red envelopes with money, among other functions. Although Alipay has developed similar uses, it has struggled to become integral to China's social networking habits. As the battle between the two has moved overseas, they have looked eagerly for partners in Asia, Europe, and North America. In late 2016, Alipay announced plans to partner with four financial institutions in Europe, Barclays PLC, BNP Paribas Group, Unicredit SPA, and Six Payment Services Limited, to provide payment services to Chinese travelers in nearly 1 million stores throughout Europe. It also inked deals with the Thai payment firm Ascend Money, France's Ingenico, and India's largest online payment provider, Paytm. WeChat is expanding into Europe with plans to set up an office in the UK alongside existing ones in Italy, Tencent Europe director Andre Gazzoni said in a recent interview. Despite their efforts, both have had difficulty reaching local consumers in foreign markets, relying mostly on Chinese citizens living and traveling overseas as their main customers. May 11, 2017. Former Chinese Foreign Minister Chen Qichun, 90, dies by Li Rongde. Chen Qichun, one of China's longest-serving foreign ministers and the diplomat who headed the separate negotiations on Hong Kong's and Macau's return to Chinese sovereignty 
died in Beijing on Tuesday night. Chen, 90, died of an illness, the official Xinhua News Agency reported Wednesday, without elaborating. Chen was the country's top diplomat from 1988 to 1998 and was a vice premier from 1993 to 2003. Chen played a major role in negotiations with Britain over the return of Hong Kong in 1997. He headed a preparatory committee for the future Hong Kong Special Administrative Region from 1993 to 1995. In April 1998, he was appointed chairman of the Macau SAR Preparatory Committee. Hong Kong became a special administrative region of China on July 1, 1997. Macau attained the same status when the Portuguese colony was returned to China on December 20, 1999. Chen's diplomatic career started in 1955 when he worked in the Chinese embassy in Moscow. Fluent in Russian and English, Chen is remembered for helping break the thaw in bilateral relations between China and the then-Soviet Union and later Russia in the 1980s and early 1990s. He wrote to then-Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kosarev in December 1991, informing the country of China's recognition of Russia as a sovereign state, according to an autobiography of Chen, published in 2003. He visited Moscow in November the following year to meet with President Boris Yeltsin, who paved the way for a groundbreaking visit by Yeltsin to China a month later. Chen also met with then-Iraqi President Saddam Hussein in November 1990 at a time when tensions were high in the Gulf region after Iraq's occupation of Kuwait. But China's mediation failed to prevent a full-blown war against Iraq led by the United States in 1991. Chen was rarely seen in public after he retired as dean of Peking University's School of International Studies in 2005. Business and Tech, Shanghai Port Chokes on Booming Trade, May 11, 2017, by Song Shiqing. The port of Shanghai, the world's busiest for container shipping, has been combating severe congestion for more than a month due to excessive traffic, causing the problem to spread to neighboring ports in Ningbo and Qingdao. On April 13th, port operator Shanghai International Port Group, SIPG, posted two statements saying near higher than usual volumes had led to long delays for arriving ships. Near April 10th, a number of shipping companies announced changes to their schedules due to the congestion. The port blames the congestion on a recent shakeup on major shipping alliances, according to an SIPG spokesman replying to an inquiry from Taishin. On April 1st, Ocean Carrier Alliances saw a reshuffle, which formed three new alliances to replace the previous four. But industry experts blame the congestion on the port's lack of long-term capacity. According to Xu Jianhua, professor at Shanghai Maritime University, the designed handling capacity for the port is only 20 million 20-foot equivalent units, TEUs, but last year it handled 37 million. To relieve the congestion, the port of Shanghai should divert its container ships to neighboring ports, but it always wants to keep the suppliers to itself, said Xu. Under current conditions, ships have been left stranded at outer anchorages for up to 18 days until berths become available. The long delays increase shipping costs, and in the end, consumers may pay for the problem, said Xu. Another port expert told Caixin many customers in provinces near Shanghai prefer to ship their goods via the port rather than other nearby destinations because of its better environment. Other factors contributing to the congestion include Shanghai's rapid trade growth this year and a recent update to the information system in the port of Shanghai, according to experts. Other factors contributing to the congestion include China's rapid trade growth this year and a recent update to the information system in the port of Shanghai, according to experts. 
The SIPG spokesman said the congestion could ease when ocean carriers finish readjusting shipping schedules. Experts believe that the situation will last longer if China's trade continues to grow, at least until the end of May, and possibly as late as the slack season of July, August, and September. The SIPG spokesman said that the congestion could ease when ocean carriers finish readjusting shipping schedules. Experts believe the situation will last longer if China's trade continues to grow, at least until the end of May, and possibly as late as the slack season of July, August, and September. That's this week's show, and thanks for joining us. We hope that you'll give us a listen every week and help spread the word. The Caixin Cynical Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Ada Shen and to Lucien and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global, as well as to Spring and Autumn and Ufei for the music. Be sure to check out the Cynical Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn. We have a terrific lineup of shows. Be sure to follow the news from China Daily also at SubChina through our free email newsletter, our smartphone app, and of course at the website, subchina.com. Take care.